Hello and welcome to Head on History. This is our last episode of the season. Ten episodes went by so fast. Ten weeks gone. Um, this has been a, a really exciting season. This was uh, dedicated to the ancient Near East with the theme of empires of faith. Really kind of examining and exploring the ways in which empires and religions intersect. It has been exciting and fun and interesting to do and it is all possible to our awesome listeners. So thank you to all of you who have tuned in. Uh, we grew ex exponentially over the past few weeks and that is that's exciting and thrilling in so many different ways it's always strange for me sitting with my microphone uh i'm just talking generally to myself or to one person our sound producer here and knowing that that you know thousands of people are tuning in and that's that's really that's really wonderful uh, i wanted to give a quick shout out to some of the people who chimed in who messaged me or who left reviews and who have been following along and supporting along the way shout out to george co and angela lee to jacqueline in australia to nagin who tuned in to us while on a flight no better way to pass the time uh to mosca r uh for the wonderful comments uh and to daisy who who left a really great review on the podcast app uh, saying it's such an entertaining and well-delivered historical perspective with delightful nerdisms appreciate it a lot thank you daisy hoops uh, and thank you everyone else who's left reviews if you haven't yet be sure to head over to that uh, itunes app or the podcast app and leave some feedback so that i can uh, be motivated during our break as i prepare for our next season finally a quick shout out to our friends over at history of ancient greece podcast that's a history of ancient really fantastic podcast and to drew over at wonders of the world you can find him at wonderspodcast.libsyn so this is going to be the last episode this is going to be dedicated to wrapping up the ancient near east then we're going to take a break for a few weeks about 10 weeks on 10 weeks off um, you can catch up on anything that you've missed and we'll come back with a new season dedicated with a new theme new concept i have a really cool plan uh coming up so this this should be really interesting watch this space don't forget about us tune in you can keep in touch with me via social media at aaolomi um but uh, you know we're gonna all good things have to come to an end and this season has to come to an end i did have a lot of fun recording it um and we have some good stuff in store for you today we are going to move to the roman empire and the sasanian empire today we talked last week or on our last episode about the messianic kings and how the kind of partitioning of Judeo-Christianity happened as a result of kind of the imperial experience, the Romanization of Christianity and rabbinic Judaism kind of resisting that uh, to some degree. Today we're going to kind of wrap up the ancient Near East and end with the coming of Islam. Um, so just to give you a brief sketch of kind of the Roman Empire, where we last left it, uh, it was under the hands of the uh, god emperors, right, from uh, Julius Caesar, who was the first kind of deified dictator, to Augustus, the first emperor that was deified, and so on and so forth. The Julio-Claudian line, which eventually comes to an end with Nero, the crazy emperor. And a period of severe strife uh, emerges. This is a period in which there's multiple emperors. I mean, right at, at, at 70 AD, 69 AD, or 69 CE to 70 CE, there's a year of four emperors. Vitilius, Vespasian, Otho, and someone else, Galba, I think, if I'm not mistaken. It's been a while since I've done uh, that period of Roman history. But the year of the four emperors uh, was, was kind of significant. It taught us, taught, taught us a lot about what the Roman Empire was going through, and it was going through a lot of crises. Titus, who eventually destroys the temple, and then finally... A series of what are known as the barrack emperors. These are people who lived in military barracks. This tension all comes to a head under Diocletian, who in 286 divides the Roman Empire into two, known as the Tetrarchy, in which two emperors rule, one in the west and one in the east, with two kind of sub-emperors or assistants, if you will. Now, Diocletian, for a period of time, uh, restores the stability of the empire. His division of the empire helps to salvage it. And in 286, 
That was a moment in which the Roman Empire could have possibly faltered severely and collapsed, but Diocletian really does rescue it from, from those tensions. And he establishes a very stable administrative system that lasts for about 110 years, but it also means that for that 110 years, the Roman Empire was divided. Now, during this time, Christianity, which had been increasingly Romanizing and adopting more and more Roman customs, faced severe persecutions from the empire officially. Diocletian was not fond of the mystery cults, and that wasn't just Christianity. He didn't like any of the mystery cults. He wasn't fond of these kind of what he considered foreign religions because they took away from the centralizing power of the official cultus, the official religio of Rome, and that would be the cult of the emperor. But in a weird kind of twist in history, it is indeed the emperors themselves that bring Christianity fully into the Roman Empire. It starts in 312 with Emperor Constantine, who some believe converts to Christianity. We're actually not sure if he does or not, but he is the first to really kind of bring Christianity into the official fold. There's a short period of time where uh, things go back to normal under Emperor Justinian the Apostate uh, from 361 to 363, but in general from then on we see an increasing Christianization of the Roman Empire. Just as Christianity was Romanized, adopting more and more Roman customs, so too now does the Roman Empire Christianize, adopting Christianity as its official religion. In 383, we have the Latin translation of the Bible known as the Vulgate, and by the late 300s, Jerusalem, which had been the holy city of the Jews, becomes the major Christian city. In 380, Theodosius uh, issues the Conctus Populus, which is the Edict of Thessalonica. This is uh, the official edict that makes Nicene Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. So the Edict of Thessalonica, I think I said that right. Maybe I said it wrong. Thessalonica? Nosia? Whatever. My Greek is not what it used to be. It was actually the only class I didn't do particularly well. I think I ended up with a B- minus in Greek when I was taking it in, at UCLA. Mastered Latin, Arabic, hands down, Persian, got it. Greek, ancient Greek, kicked my ass. Just kicked my ass. <laughs> Anyways, so he issues this edict in 380, and the Roman religion, or the Christianity, becomes the official religion of the empire. Now, Constantine had already made it an official religion, meaning that it was alongside all the other religions of the empire, but it's really Theodosius that officially makes it the Roman religion. By 388, though, there's a law that prohibits the marriage between Jews and Christians, fully and uh, entirely codifying that demarcation and partitioning between Judeo-Christianity, and by then, by 395, the Roman Empire divides yet again, and that is the final division, eventually a couple uh, decades later, with the Western Roman Empire collapsing, leaving only the Eastern Roman Empire. So that's the rough timeline that we're working here. Let's focus in on Constantine. So Constantine we're not sure if he converts early on or on his deathbed. A lot of kind of the histories and, and biographies of Constantine are written by later Christian theologians who see Constantine because of his adoption of Christianity as a sort of uh, a holy figure. And so some of this could possibly be reworking the actual origins of Constantine. We don't know if he really had a sort of Damascene conversion in the same way that Saul did when he became Paul of Tarsus. We don't know that. It's entirely possible that he utilized Christianity as an effective means of unifying the empire while really not converting until his death. But we do know that he adopts Christian symbols in a series of battles, I mean, one of which is the Cairo that becomes the official symbol of Christianity, the Cairo being the Greek symbols for Christ. Uh, this is a sort of X with a P in it, and that's the Cairo. He manages to win a major battle, a battle of the Milvan Bridge, and he issues the Edict of Milan. The Edict of Milan is the official moment in which uh, the Roman Empire recognizes Christianity as one of its official empires. 
this edict is the end, the official end, of any real persecution. Uh, it's issued in 313 CE, um, and it is really kind of a radical reversal of Diocletian's persecutions. Up until this point, Diocletian had carried out a series of kind of programs in which they were he was wiping out Christians, sending them into the Colosseum, feeding them to the lions, all as a way of really eliminating the kind of foreign threat to the cult of the emperor. Well, by 313, after winning this victory and adopting the Cairo, Constantine issues the Edict of Milan, you know, extending full and total tolerance to Christianity and recognizing it as one of the official cultus of Rome. Why he did it, we're unsure, but again, some of his biographers talk about this moment in which he had a dream, in which he had Christ come to him and say, if you adopt me as your patron, I shall grant you victory in battle. And so he told all his soldiers to put the Cairo on their shield. We have no idea if that happened or not. We just know that he does issue the edict and he becomes more and more interested in adopting Christianity as not just in one of the official religions, but as a stabilizing force of the empire. He tries to do, in many ways, or carry on what Diocletian did, and that is to stabilize an empire that is more and more shaky. It's complicated and messy. The taxation system isn't working as well as it is as supposed to be. It's lost territory. It's faced a series of nomadic wars. So the empire needs stability. Now, why Christianity? Perhaps because Christianity offered a singular ideology in, in the way that the original cult of the emperors did, but even more centralized without all the kind of competing deities but one deity, perhaps. We do know that Constantine starts to fuse many of the beliefs, practices, and tenets of Sol Invictus, this unconquered or unvanquished solar deity with Christianity. It's how Christ goes from being a, a meek prophet to a sort of conquering war god we start to see a more roman jesus than a, than the original kind of jewish messianic reformer so perhaps that plays a role into it another argument put forth is that it was likely as a result of the diocese that the romans had established now diocese was actually a pre uh, or i mean the christians had established that a pre-christian structure a diocese was a roman administrative unit but each diocese often had a bishop and that bishop tended to a congregation and would have priests and that hierarchy made it an effective structure for taxation so it is possible that if for that reason, that kind of stable religious hierarchy and structure that Constantine adopted Christianity. What is what we do know is that he intervenes directly into the debates about Christianity. In 325 CE, he calls the Council of Nicaea. And at this council, all the bishops, priests, and theologians gather and they have a debate about the Arian heresy. This is Arianism versus Athanasius. Uh, both of these are, um, this is a, a, a kind of a broader debate, Arianism versus Nicaeanism, about the nature of Christ. The Arian heresy, which was quite popular in the Mediterranean, particularly the Levant and in Egypt, where, Alexander, where Arian, Arius himself was based, argues that Jesus was like the Father, that is, homeosis, that there was some similarity there, but they were not made of the same substance, usia. So there were similarities, but not the same. In other words, it was a non-Trinitarian belief in Christ, that it was not one uh, deity with three faces. Instead, Jesus the Christ was a creature distinct from the Father, meaning that he was a, an actual created being, that he had a beginning and therefore he had an end. He was a mortal human being. Uh, this was rejected in the Council of Nicaea, and eventually the Nicaean Creed was adopted, which uh, both uh, accepted the kind of apostles, but as well as created some canon to the Bible. 
at this point, most of the Bible was a series of books and letters and, and, and kind of writings. It was not really consolidated, and there was kind of competing versions of it. But we see that the Constantine consolidates it. He also uh, adopts this Nicene Creed upon the recommendation of the bishops, and he establishes it and enforces it via his empire. In other words, this is an imperial intervention into theology. It is the beginnings of what religious scholars and, and, and scholars of history, religious history would call orthodoxy. That is, official belief. In many ways, the emperors that we are talking about now are holy emperors or emperors of orthodoxy. If in pre in the previous episode we had messianic kings, and in the episode before that we had uh, god kings, now we're talking about steward kings, kings and emperors who are ordained by God, who are holy and blessed, and who have an official role in theology. They are the harbingers and stewards of orthodoxy. These are the holy emperors of orthodoxy. By which what I mean is that they do not see themselves as divine, but they do see themselves burdened with a divine mission, and that is to establish true belief and true practice in the empire. The fusion of religion and empire produces a particular imperialism, an imperialism that is didactic, that it is corrective. It corrects people's beliefs. Why is that? That is because the empire consolidates and centralizes it. It puts all that power in a single person, the emperor. And religiously, that means that the emperor and his clergy work hand in hand. The clergy legitimizes the emperor, and the emperor legitimizes the clergy. The clergy goes, this is our holy emperor who is ordained by God. And the emperor goes, I, who am ordained by God, recognize the clergy as the caretakers of orthodoxy. What they say, what they believe, and what they practice are the one true way of belief, the one true way of religion. So we start to see the diversity of the Jesus movement, and it was a very diverse movement. It didn't have a lot of kind of central tenets other than it was a sort of reformed Pharisaic uh, movement with Messianism kind of thrown in, or kind of redefined Messianism, if you will. Now you start to see it consolidate. No, there's only one way to believe, one way to practice, one way to pray. And these are official by the empire. The empire issues a series of edicts, official documents that catalog and record and acknowledge what is considered to be official in the same way that the translation of the Bible into Latin becomes an official translation. It is given a sort of stamp of approval. Constantine goes on to kind of really cement his orthodoxy by converting most of Jerusalem into a Christian city. So when the Romans banned the Jews, you know, after the Bar Kokhba revolt, the Christian empire continued it. Constantine doesn't allow the Jews to return back to the holy city, even though he's now himself perhaps a Christian or at least favorable to Christianity. Instead, he continues the tradition of keeping Jews separate and instead converts the city to a Christian city. We have Eusebius from the life of Constantine right, And as one layer after another was laid bare, the place which was beneath the earth appeared directly as this was done, contrary to all expectation. The venerable and hallowed monument of our Savior's resurrection became visible. Thereupon the emperor gave orders that a house of prayer worthy of God should be erected around the cave of salvation and on a scale of rich and imperial costliness. This is the story of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, that is Anastasius's church. The church, the Anastasia church, or the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, is a physical embodiment and representation of the sort of imperial orthodoxy that has come to be, a Romanization of Christianity and a Christianization of Rome. Here you have uh, Constantine return to Jerusalem, and he it is not sacred because the temple was there. It is not sacred because the prophets prophesied there. It is sacred because Jesus died there. Because Jesus was crucified. Where he was buried is uncovered through an official uh, um, exhibition. It is uh, carried out by an official order from the uh, 
emperor this excavation is seen as as not just a, a intellectual exercise but an exercise in piety to discover truth and it's done mostly uh, patronized by constantine's mother who was indeed a christian herself and at first they uncover this kind of statue of venus of heathenness oh this is the heathen past so they purify eliminate and remove that heathen past and underneath what is found is the visible remnants of of the tomb, the tomb of Christ. And so it is considered holy because Christ was there. That physical contact with Christ produces holiness. In turn, in other words, holiness is done through the medium of the body of Christ here, not just through God's glory as it might have been in kind of early Israelite religion, the notion of the Shekinah, right? The, this spirit or glory of the Lord that descended onto the temple. No, that's not holiness anymore. It is actual contact and proximity with Christ upon which an official church is built to venerate and uh, uh, um, and honor Christ. This orthodoxy is best represented in this church. We find this kind of militant uh, piety, this militant monasticism emerge, in which you have the priestly class and the military class, the imperial class, really coming together. This Roman Empire has priests, and these priests are no longer flamens and augurs, they're Christian bishops. So the Roman religio becomes more and more supplanted by Christianity. It starts with Constantine and it culminates with Theodosius. So a period of several decades, they establish themselves as the official clergy of the empire, in turn justifying the empire itself. This is no longer a Roman empire. No, no. This is a holy empire carrying out God's mission. Well, what is that mission? Not only to spread the gospel, but the true gospel, the true interpretation of that gospel. This militant piety and monasticism is at the heart of what we would call the Byzantine Empire. This is the Eastern Roman Empire that continues after the West falls and collapses. Now, I think no emperor after Constantine best represents this kind of fusion of religion and, and imperialism, this kind of custodianship, these holy emperors that are custodians of orthodoxy, than Justinian the Great. Justinian the Great rules from 527 to 565 uh, CE, and he builds a series of great monuments. There's actually a very famous relief of his in which he is in the center, and around him is a halo. The concept of the halo halo really emerges under the Byzantines. It's a mark of holiness. Well, who has halos? Jesus has halos. The saints have halos. The apostles have halos. And the emperors have halos. In other words, elevating the emperor to on the same level of holiness as these other people, not as a god figure, but as a figure imbued with holiness nonetheless. He is surrounded on one side by administrators and priests, and on the other side by senators and soldiers. In other words, the Roman emperor, the holy Roman emperor, is at the head of a massive bureaucracy and military, but also at the head of a church. So this fusion of a church and military is really the core of uh, the Byzantine Empire. Justinian, Justinian goes on to build the Hagia Sophia, the most famous church of the ancient world that eventually gets converted into a mosque under the uh, Ottomans. But it was uh, built originally in 537 by Justinian. And inside the Hagia Sophia, which is really kind of an architectural marvel, combining square buildings with domes and just, just gorgeous, the inside of it has a relief, and in that relief we see Mary, the mother of God, sitting on a throne, and in her lap is the baby Jesus. To one side is Justinian, who offers up Hagia Sophia. The other side is Constantine, who offers up the city of Constantinople, a city that he founds in the Eastern Roman Empire. 
In other words, both of these people are stewards. They are ordained by God himself, the baby Jesus, Justinian and Constantine. And in turn, for them being ordained by God, they see themselves as custodians of Jesus' message. And they demonstrate that by building great monumental buildings, these great cities that are dedicated to God's glory. Interestingly, that same notion of monumental building goes right back to the logics of the Roman Empire itself. Imperium, that is, the cult of the emperor and the dominion of the emperor is demonstrated by the emperor's ability to build cities and specifically to fund public works and public monuments that demonstrate symbolically the power of the emperor. So too does that logic continue under the Byzantine Empire. But now they are not just justifying the imperium of the emperor. They're also demonstrating the glory of God. So the glory of God and the authority of the emperor manifests in physical monumental buildings and churches. In other words, holiness is contained in the buildings themselves. And that holiness is not simply the presence of God as we saw it, for example, in early Israelite temples, but instead in those individuals who represent in their lives the holiness of God. That would be the saints. These churches uh, are built literally on the bones of saints and monks. They hold relics and, and physical objects that are imbued with holiness because the people themselves were holy, like the emperor. Now, how are they holy? Well, this is an interesting kind of uh, genealogy, if you will, the transformation of the saint. The original saint uh, was a martyr, that is, violence done onto the saint themselves. Uh, saint Stephen, quite famously, being an example. And Saint Paul, Saint uh, Peter, many of them are representative of these. These are individuals who, as a result of their faith, faced persecution or violence. That violence being done upon them, the hardship that they experienced, and the steadfastness of their faith made them into saints physical embodiments of holiness. As we start to see the Roman religion, as we start to see Christianity Romanized, and in turn uh, we see the Roman Empire Christianized, the martyr is transformed from the person upon whom violence is done into the person who does violence themselves. We start to see the imaginings of a sort of sanctified violence or sacred violence. The martyr is not the person who who is killed for God, but who kills for God. So this person actually carries out the violence. So we start to see Roman soldiers like St. Martin de Porres become uh, martyrs. Uh, these are people who carry out God's will through violence, this sanctified violence. The saints transform. That doesn't mean to see that all martyrs are now soldiers, no. But the introduction of soldiers as martyrs is really telling of the kind of transformation that we're seeing happen to Christianity and its intersection with empire. This empire of faith is, you know, duly, you know, rooted in expansion, in a sort of didactic mission that we must educate, enlighten, and spread the gospel. It has a proselytizing, evangelizing goal. And so these uh, individuals don't just go out and fight for God, but they spread God's message. The martyrs are people who correct unbelief, who correct heresy. Originally, heresy was established, orthodoxy and heresy was to demarcate between Judaism and Christianity. This is the partitioning of Judeo-Christianity. But now we're starting to see the border redefined yet again. The partition is not between Judaism and Christianity. That's already partitioned. But Christ the right sect of Christianity versus the heretical sects of Christianity. So heresy, contrary to kind of the popular understanding of Christianity, early uh, sanctified violence was not actually directed at pagans. There wasn't, there wasn't really a great Christian pagan war as some people would think but instead directed at christian heretics so the followers of arian were, were faced with, with violence uh nestorian christians faced violence the donatists up in north africa who augustine of hippo was not a big fan of they were the faced violence so sanctified violence was directed within 
the confines of the religious community, that is, within Christianity. In other words, it was an empire establishing a centralized orthodoxy. Anything outside of that centralized orthodoxy was a threat to the authority of the empire. As this was going on in the Eastern Roman Empire, you had a similar process happening in the Iranian plateau with the emergence of the Sasanian Empire, the one of the greatest and vastest empires. We often teach kind of world history and we focus a lot on the Roman Empire and the Byzantines, but the Sasanian Empire was equally as powerful, equally as vast, and lasted a long time. Uh, my own advisor, Taraj Dariayi, is a famous Sasanian historian. Um, and so I really want to kind of emphasize that the Byzantine Empire wasn't the only power in the world. This was not a unilateral world. The Sasanian Empire was on par with the Byzantines. They ruled from about 224 CE to 651 CE, and they conquered most of the territories that were originally the uh, um, Achaemenid Empire, the Parthian Empire, and the Seleucid Empire. Uh, we didn't talk about the Parthians much on this podcast. I'm not particularly interested in them. They're kind of a, a placeholder in between the empires for me. Me personally. I'm interested in the Sasanians, though, because I think they do demonstrate this relationship between religion and empire in late antiquity. They are established by a guy named Ardashir I, who's actually a local ruler in, in Persis. So in the same way that uh, the Achaemenids under uh, Cyrus the Great come out, conquer the Medes, etc. So too do we find uh, a similar experience with Ardashir I. He's the grandson of a guy named Sasan, was where we get the word Sasanian from or Sassanid from. He leads a revolt against the Parthian king Ardavan V, uh, and it gathers a lot of support, and he eventually defeats Ardavan V in battle. The battle is then commemorated and memorialized on a giant relief that depicts Ardashir fighting Ardavan as good fighting evil. And the good, that is Ardashir I, is blessed and ordained by the High God, that is Ahura Mazda of Zoroastrianism. So the dualism of Zoroastrianism that talks about cultivating the good and forbidding the bad, cultivating the good and forbidding the evil, is really manifested in the kind of justifications, both retroactive and at the time, for the conquest by Ardashir I. And he establishes a uh, an empire, the Sassanid Empire, in which the Zoroastrian clergy become increasingly influential. We know that they were important during the Achaemenid Empire, but the Achaemenids were far more diverse. You know, they had an you know they had a kind of loose relationship with Shamash and Marduk and other their Mesopotamian deities. But under Ardashir, we start to see that the Zoroastrian clergy consolidate more and more power. You have the king of kings at the top, Ardashir and his successors, and then you have the Maubeds underneath them, justifying the rule of the king of kings. So in some ways, this is a reflection of the sort of universal kingship that we saw under the Achaemenid Empire, a king of all the world, also a king in charge of maintaining the cosmic order of the world. The Sasanian king maintained the balance between good and evil, cultivating the good, forbidding the evil, by physically waging war against the evil. He was the representative of, of Ahura Mazda on earth. Well, how did we know all this? Because he had an official clergy. The clergy, the Maubeds, were official members of the empire. They legitimized the king as the king of kings and representative of Ahura Mazda, and in turn, Ardashir recognized the Maubids as the official priests of the empire. Not just one set of priests amongst a series of cults, a kind of pantheistic approach to religion, but no, a singular adoption of religion. Zoroastrianism is the one true religion of the Sasanians. Indeed, uh, even the titles that the king adopts, the, the seed of the gods, the king of kings, the king of the four corners are all aimed at reinforcing this ideology of him being ordained by the Zoroastrian god Ahura Mazda. 
They also very consciously link themselves, the Sasanians do, with the Achaemenids. So there's a sense of continuity between the Achaemenids and the Sasanians. They see themselves as a sort of new manifestations of the Achaemenids. And indeed, the uh, conquest of Alexander is often referred to as the quote-unquote evil reign of Alexander. It brought about the, it brought about the uh, Seleucids and the Parthians, and these were, these were empires that had gone astray because they had lost the true message. Now, the reality was that part of this uh, reimagining of history is just that, a reimagining of history. Alexander, uh, in his conquest, was pretty diverse and in many ways adopted a lot of, uh, you know, integrated and adopted many of the Achaemenid practices. And in turn, the Achaemenids themselves were integrative more than anything else. Though they had a strong relationship with Zoroastrianism, they hadn't established Zoroastrianism, Zoroastrianism as their singular religion. Instead, there was a reimagining in order to justify this new orthodoxy that was emerging. This is the one way to worship, the one path in order to cultivate the good and forbid the evil, and that is Zoroastrianism under the holy custodianship or stewardship of the king of kings, Ardashir and his successors. This, uh, you know, uh, kingship, this custodianship is manifested in the idea that uh, prosperity comes with goodness. So long as the empire was rich and stable and wealthy, that was a sign of Ahura Mazda's blessing. It manifested literally in that way. And when there was chaos and division, that was Ahura Mazda removing his blessing and instead uh, letting Ahraman kind of rule the, the land. So the kings, the Sasanian kings, saw themselves as both holy and as stewards, just as the Byzantines did, whereas the Byzantines were a little bit more interested in theology than the Sasanians with. Both of them saw themselves as ordained by the gods, in this case by Christ or by Ahura Mazda, and in turn to cultivate the holiness in whatever they did. This cultivation of holiness is called Farhang in Persian uh, under the Sasanian Empire. Farhang is high culture. This is the culture that emerges, the courtly culture that emerges under the Sasanians. It's a sort of no aristocratic, nobility-oriented, uh, uh, you know, culture. One that had that would produce a sophisticated, educated uh, individuals, specifically men, who would have wittiness and charm, and have mental prowess, and could carry out, could play in physical games and hunt, and were knowledgeable about uh, literature and poetry and philosophy and religion, who were knowledgeable about music and enjoyed games and had fine and refined tastes. This cultivation of high culture, Farhang, was a manifestation of Ahura Mazda's goodness. You would carry out this sort of disciplined life of being an educated warrior, kind of scholar warrior. Uh, you were able to play polo, and you were able to fight, and you were also able to hunt, but you could also recite poetry, and play music, and play chess, and backgammon. You would play all these games, and that was a demonstration that you had cultivated the good, that you had cultivated the blessings of Ahura Mazda. And in turn, all of those attributes were considered characteristics of blessings. Nowhere do we see the manifestation of this kind of ideology better than in the creation of Sasanian cities. In the same way that the Byzantine world created monumental buildings as an example of both the continuation of the Roman tradition, but also to house and, and, and hold and become receptacles of the holiness of uh, of gods manifested vis-a-vis -vis the saints and through the official authority of the emperor, the cities in the Sasanian world were all symbolic. They were built, unlike other cities, as hubs. So there were circle cities with multiple rings to them, and the further away you were from the rings, the further you were from the emperor who would be in the center. The king of kings would be in the center as a physical representation of the blessings of Ahura Mazda, and the uh, blessing would then radiate outwards from there. So around the king would be his clergy, and around the clergy would be the nobility, and around the nobility would be the merchant class and outside the merchant class would be the strangers and the visitors and so on and so forth. This hub, radial hub-like uh, structure was meant to replicate symbols of the sun, the symbology, a uh, sort of solar symbology. 
and in turn they then get adopted by the Abbasid Caliphate many centuries later uh, when the Muslims conquered the Sasanian Empire. They adopt this particular structure of cities in the way that they establish their, the, the capital cities of the Caliphates. Now, the Sasanians and the Byzantines don't always get along, and they are, because they're the two superpowers of the ancient Near East, they do fight a series of battles with each other. And most of these battles come out of that tension with orthodoxy. So, for example, under Shapur I, from 226 to 270, we see a series of battles with... Um, Roman emperors, uh, Philip the Arab, and so on and so forth, a series of these emperors that he fights. And this is mostly because Shapur is consolidating re uh, religious authority under himself. Now, Shapur does something kind of interesting. Shapur, for a brief moment, flirts with uh, Manichaeism. Manichaeism is founded by a prophet named Mani, who has a sort of Gnostic interpretation of good and evil. Uh, so there's some Zoroastrian components, but there's a belief that the world wasn't created by Ahura Mazda, but rather the world was created by evil. That the domestic, or so that I should say, the the material world is an evil force, and that goodness and light is spiritual, and that light would kind of uh, remove itself from the earth. So there was this process: as the further away you were from the light, you would become more material, and the more material you would become, the more corrupt you were, and then the close closer you became to the light, the less material you became, and the more pure you became, in some ways reflecting the kind of notion, the radial solar component of the cities. But this was an attempt by Shapur to really undermine the authority of the Magian clergy. The clergy, who were the official legitimizers of the king, in the same way that the king was the official legitimizers of the uh, clergy, had gained a lot of power, and many of them had ended up in the aristocratic class as well. So they became rulers and governors and whatnot, in addition to being magi. And so Shapur attempted for a brief time to kind of undermine their power by adopting uh, Manichaeism, this dualistic Gnostic religion. But under Waharam I, a Mani is imprisoned and then he is killed and the followers are persecuted. And instead, Zoroastrianism, in response to this attempt to kind of undermine the priests, is, is, is enforced even more vigorously. So this brief moment of trying to adopt Manichaeism ends up having an unintended consequence in that it, it facilitates the establishment of a Zoroastrian orthodoxy. You have the appointment of someone known as the Maubid Maubadan, that is the high priest or priest of priests, who then oversees both a sort of dogmatic interpretation of Zoroastrianism, but a program of persecution, of, of sanctified violence. Violence directed at non-Zoroastrians, specifically against Christians who were seen as a threat. These Christians were believed to have too many loyalties or connections to Rome, to the Byzantines. Now, interestingly, the Zoroastrians didn't have too much of a problem with Jews, and we find that they end up adopting Jews into the empire, and it's not that big a deal, mostly because the Jews had been in the Persian world for just such a long time that they were just they were part of the fab the religious fabric. So these Zoroastrians not only create an orthodoxy, one way to worship Zoroaster, and that is through his fire temples and through the ordinances of the king of kings, who is legitimized by the priest of priests. Um, and not only do they do that, but they carry out this sanctified violence, a series of purges against Christians. This leads to religious tensions under Shapur II, from 309 to 379. We see that uh, Rome looks to uh, the Sasanians as a threat to Christianity. The persecution of Christians is seen as justification for Rome to go to war against the Sasanians. Now, the reality is we don't know if it was just theological. We do know that they were also fought competing over territory, the region of Armenia in particular, and in the Holy Land, Jerusalem, the Levant, was a frontier lands that tended to go back and forth between Roman hands and Sasanian hands, but also that they carried out the war through a series of proxies in Arabia. Rome, the Romans, for example, are building upon their federales, these official uh, agents of the empire who would fight on their behalf, and the uh, Sasanians calling upon Jewish tribes who they had allied themselves, the Lachameds and the uh, Jews of Himyar. 
So this uh, series of battles is only made, this series of tensions is only made worse when Yagdazir I establishes Nestorian Christianity as, as an, an official religion alongside Zoroastrianism. Now, Nestorian uh, doctrine is actually uh, kind of forbidden or banned by the Roman religion, by, by the Roman Empire. And that is because Nestorianism was seen as a heresy, it was seen outside the uh, doctrine of the Nicene Creed. It had emphasized this kind of distinction between the two natures, the human and the divine of Jesus. In other words, that Christ had it was sort of a diophistism, there's sort of a two, two, two natures, a human nature and a divine nature, which was uh, in many ways a, a contradiction of the Nicene Creed. And that contradiction was a threat to Roman orthodoxy. So this tension, this religious tension, in addition to kind of contest over land, is what leads to a series of battles known as the Byzantine-Sassanid Wars. Uh, and these wars are kind of interesting. It originally starts off that, that there's a period of actual tolerance. Uh, Maurice, the emperor of, of the Byzantines, helps Khosrow II regain his throne. But by 602 or so, Heraclius comes about, Maurice gets killed, and the Sasanians use that as justification to declare war. You've killed our friend, you've killed our ally. This kind of is mostly uh, probably a, a kind of excuse, really a, a political valve for what really is a series of social, imperial, religious tensions. The tension between an orthodoxy in the Byzantine world and an orthodoxy in the Zoroastrian world, an orthodoxy in the Roman Empire and in the Sasanian Empire, all comes to a head, and they fight it out from 602 to 628. Um, and most of the time, the Byzantines, the Sasanians are winning, and indeed, they, they even conquer Jerusalem at one point, and there's reports that they take the uh, piece of the true cross back to uh, their capital in the Sassanian Empire, but about 610 or so, so uh, you know, Heraclius really kind of turns things around, and really by 620, we start to see him reconquer the Holy Land. This Byzantine-Sassanian War is, in my opinion, a, the end result of a process of centralization between empire and religion. If you have an empire that is using that is creating an orthodoxy in theology. Centralization of theology and doctrine and dogma produces orthodoxy. In turn, that orthodoxy then is, is used to centralize the empire. Then that gives the justifications for sanctified violence for anyone that threatens that centralization process, whether it's people who are imperial threats or people who are theological threats, people who undermine the very justifications. You see that same process in the Byzantine world with Christianity the Christianization of the Roman Empire, and you see it in the Sasanian world, the Zoroastrianization of the Sasanian Empire. In other words, what you end up with is over a series of several hundred years, holy emperors who are the custodians of orthodoxy. And they see one another as a threat to their mission. And so they go to war. And this war lasts for several decades. It has a huge impact on the Arabian Peninsula in particular. We find that the war is carried out through a series of proxy conflicts known as the Red Sea Wars. For those of you that go, hmm, that sounds familiar, that's because three seasons ago, when we first started our very, this podcast, we started with the Red Sea Wars as the context for Islam. The Jews of Himyar persecuting the Christian Arab population under the aegis of the Zoroastrians, that, the, that is the Sasanians, carrying out their mission of targeting allies of the Byzantine Empire. The Byzantine Empire responding by tapping and activating their agents in East Africa, namely the Kingdom of Aksum, who then launches a surprise attack on Himyar and conquers it. This battle between the two of them is the context for Islam. Islam emerges as a rejection of the sectarianism, tribalism, and the larger international late antique alliances. You had to ally yourselves with the Sasanians or you had to ally yourselves with the Byzantines. 
in reality, Islam can arguably be called the third way, a rejection of those alliances in choosing something different, that we are not unified by our imperial allegiances, but a single community of believers. Now, one can argue that the imperialization of Islam also produces a sort of notion of sanctified violence, but this is all within the context of late antiquity. One can only understand what is going on in late antiquity if you understand the emergence of orthodoxy, its intersection with empire, how this produces a desire for sanctified violence, that is a sort of monastic militancy or militant piety, or a pious militancy that is aimed at, at establishing and protecting and, and, and consolidating power to protect the orthodoxy, you have to fight for it, and you have to fight for it vigorously. All of this is the religious context and milieu of late antiquity. It's a fascinating history. It's a briefly described here in our podcast, but I think it sets the stage for everything we've talked about until now. This particular uh, battle, this particular tension between the Sasanians and the Byzantines, and this particular uh, process is at the heart of understanding the emergence of Islam, but it's also important to understand in its own right. This episode was dedicated to helping us understand and really refining that thesis of the empires of fate, that religions of the ancient world were defined, shaped by their imperial context, and empires in turn were shaped by their religious beliefs. The two went hand in hand together. There wasn't this separation of kind of polit politics and religion, but instead they really fed into each other. Hopefully you can see that theme with the emergence of the holy emperors who are legitimized by clergy, clerics and bishops in the Byzantine Empire, uh, Maubeds in the Sasanian Empire, and in turn how they legitimize those clerics as the official uh, caretakers of an orthodox way of doing things. One religion, one way of practicing, right belief, right practice, uh, right uh, theology, all is orthodoxy. I hope this was an interesting season. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. It was very fun to record. I always get a little bit sad when the seasons are over because I enjoy uh, these episodes so much. But I also need a break. It's time for me to focus a little bit more on uh, finishing up grades and whatnot. So I will be away for a few weeks, about 10 weeks, 10 episodes a season. 10 weeks off. That's the that's the deal. Uh, we'll be ending. This is their last episode of season four. We will be returning in 10 weeks, in a few weeks, with a new season where I have some very interesting uh, plans for you. Uh, I uh, tentatively believe that we are going to talk about women in Islam. So we're going to talk about the women who shaped Islam. We're going to talk about how Islam's relationship to gender, 10 episodes dedicated to the big figures, to, to the women of Islam, to the women of the Muslim community, both in the ancient world up until the modern era. We're going to talk about all of them, and we're going to talk about Islam's relationship with gender. So we're returning back to Islam after spending this season on the ancient religions. If you're interested in learning more about this history that we talked about, I highly recommend reading the work of Bowersock, A Throne of Adjulis is very useful. Uh, Empires and Collision is also very good. All of those are great books as well. Thomas S. Gorich's uh, Violence in Late Antiquity is also a fantastic book for understanding the sort of relationship with sanctified violence. Anyways, that is it for this season. Thank you again for tuning in. It wouldn't have been possible to, to have this podcast without all the wonderful support from our listeners and all the wonderful support from the people who give us shout outs and who uh, interact with us and leave feedback and support us in a myriad of different ways. I am your host, Ali A. Alomi, uh, signing out for now. See you in a few weeks. Stay smart, you beautiful history nerds. Mm -hmm.